This is the full story. I'm Tom Kuzer. Happy Earth Week. Maybe something we should be wishing each other every week. But uh, today we're focusing on the policies our local lawmakers in Connecticut and New York are considering or have approved that could shape our environmental laws for years to come. We begin in Connecticut with Jan Ellen Spiegel. She's the freelance environment and energy reporter for the CT Mirror, the online news publication. Jan joins me here in the studio. Welcome back to The Full Story, Jan. Good, good to be here. It's good to see you. The Energy and Technology and Environment Committees in the Connecticut State Senate and House vet all environmental bills before they go before the General Assembly for a vote. I'm wondering uh, how many pieces of legislation that uh, you know of through your reporting are they looking at right now? Well, it's a lighter year than uh, we've seen in past years. I'm not going to hazard a guess as to why. Once things get whittled down, you're not really talking about too many bills, half a dozen, eight, ten, maybe. Some of these will actually, before the end of the session, end up combined into each other, which is what the legislature often does. Um, You know, a few have bubbled up as either really controversial or exceedingly important in one way or another, but not too many. It's a light year. Back in January, you wrote an article in the CT Mirror outlining those bills, and you did point out that there's a new concern on that list uh, this year, the bears, as some people would say, black bears to be exact. How did black bears get on the legislators' agenda or on the radar this year? Well, there have been lots and lots of reports of bear incursions into people's homes, bird feeders, what have you. And there was a young kid that was attacked by a bear, and that was probably the biggest precipitating factor. Connecticut's kind of in a unique position uh, among its neighboring states in that it doesn't allow bear hunting of any sort. Uh, Most other states in the region do allow some sort of restrictive bear hunting. But based on where the legislation has ended up, we're still not really going to allow bear hunting in any uh, broad way unless, of course, uh, something changes between now and the end of the session, which, of course, it it could. There had been a ton of bills proposed, everything from open season, shoot them all, to nope, we're not going to do anything. What's ended up is closer to the nope, we're not going to do anything end of things. Uh, The legislation that's out there now has um, really three key components to it, one of which is if bears are really destroying agricultural facilities, that would be farms, uh, crops, or uh, items related to raising bees, the farmer would need to uh, document it and actually get a permit and be allowed to destroy a bear if it was attacking its product. Under another component is that actually right now in Connecticut, but this would be in the legislation specifically, If a bear is attacking you or getting in your home or doing something that is really posing an imminent danger, you can't shoot it. You are within your rights to do that. The third component has to do with intentional feeding of 
of bears. And that's, in, in a sense, the most interesting component. If you unintentionally feed a bear, like have a bird feeder out and a bear gets into it, and it is noted by law enforcement authorities and you've been warned not to do it, if you do it again, you're in an intentional category now. So you could get in big trouble if you get warned once after you did it unintentionally, but then do it again. So that's in there. And that's really the extent of it. There, you know, there's no open season on bears. What would big trouble entail as far as a penalty? Is that uh, uh, outlined in the, in the bill? I'm not clear on that. Another thing that I did not see in the bill, which doesn't mean I could have missed it or it may get in there, is sort of an educational component to teaching homeowners, especially out in the, the wooded areas where bears are normally seen, which is really the western side of the state, northwest, northeast. You know, just from personal experience, having lived in Colorado for a number of years, you know, when we arrived there, we were immediately given educational material on what to do about bears and what to do about mountain lions. So there was no messing around. The education component was right there the second you moved in. So what's left of this legislation then? Is it likely to pass? Always hard to know. You never know what's going to get thrown in a bill at the last minute. These things morph till the very end sometimes, mm. and sometimes even after the very end, and then have to go back to another chamber. Um, my sense is that legislators felt there was definitely a problem that had to be addressed at some level, and the notion of doing something as opposed to nothing will probably sit well with folks. The real diehards... It's an educational problem. It's a people problem. Don't take it out on the bears, folks. Would they vote for this? I have no idea. Let's move on to uh, to energy, if we could. And in the article, of, again, referring back to the January article that you wrote, you say energy is often described as one of the most difficult issues that lawmakers grapple with, and energy rates are always always a concern. One of the bills known as SB7, Senate Bill 7, which is supposed to promote, quoting, a promote a more equitable and transparent energy market that works in the best interest of Connecticut's consumers of energy. That's a quote from the bill, but is that what it actually will do from what you've been able to discern? This is probably one of the biggest moving targets among the bills that I keep an eye on right now. View from 30,000 feet on this is it seems to be designed to give the Public Utilities Regulatory Authority, Pura, which regulates the utilities. It gives them more flexibility in how that's done. Now, I'm going to back up a half a second here and explain that for the last several years now, when the new chair of Pura came in, Marissa Gillette, she began a series of what are known as dockets. I think we're up to over a dozen, all working towards changing how regulation of the utilities works and making it more consumer-friendly, making it more equitable, 
not giving the utilities as much free reign as they had. And she has been working through this. This is ongoing. So a lot of this stuff was already happening. This legislation seems to juice it a bit in that one of the things um, Marissa Gillette has complained about a lot, I've written this, other folks have written that, is that the legislature often gets too prescriptive with how it sets up energy regulation. So her hands are tied on what she can do. This allows, some of this would allow her to be more flexible in that if a program didn't work out quite how it had been planned by the legislature, she could change it. In the past, she hasn't been able to do that. There are things in here like executive compensation and how that would work for um, the folks that run the utilities. That may not actually make it through. You know, what what the utilities come to Pura, part of what they come to Pura for is how they get reimbursed for the money they spend. There are certain things they spend money for that, can be deemed as a little bit more frivolous, like certain advertising and stuff like that. That as opposed to infrastructure and, and equipment, that sort of thing. Right. Yeah. That you know, our folks are not happy about, and those sorts of things are in there. So it's, I guess, the best way to explain it. It doesn't have direct consumer application, like your bill's going to change this way or that way. It's really tinkering around the edges for those within the industry that would eventually play out for the consumers. There, there are other couple of pieces of legislation, and one that I think is, is kind of interesting is that Pura used to have five commissioners. It got knocked down to three when Dan Malloy came into office, and it actually got moved up to five a couple of sessions ago, and they've never appointed the other two. Um, there's a separate bill that would keep it at three, but also put term limits on new commissioners. The, anyone in there now is grandfathered, but it would put term limits on future commissioners. That legislation is likely to wind up in this bill, SB7, while other pieces of it are are probably going to get moved out. One component that's in there that is probably going to stick around was, you know, would essentially make Eversource and, and Avangrid pay some bills that go into Operation Fuel for low-income folks. So, you know, there's bits and pieces in there where it lands, Please don't ask me where I think it's going to land because I don't know. I don't think any anybody who tells you they know, uh-uh, don't we don't know. Me. There are some bills that would update older laws, like the Global Warming Solutions Act of 2008. What, what's happening there? Well, <laughs> in the end, I haven't seen anything that updates it in sort of the standard way. There is a very contentious piece of legislation that sort of builds on it, and that has come in for all kinds of heat. It's kind of referred to as the greenhouse gas (laughs) sub-targets, 
um, bill, what it would do is allow the commissioner of the Department of Energy and Environmental Protection to set sub-targets and targets within specific industries for limiting greenhouse gas emissions. It would also allow the commissioner to levy fines if they are not met. And at least what I noticed in the legislation, some of those fines could get up to 25000 bucks a day. The fossil fuel industry groups are absolutely furious about it. They have once again, this is the same group that target same groups that targeted transportation and climate initiative as a tax. They're calling this a tax too. And that, you know, because uh, the commissioner would be able to set the targets and levy the fines, that it's a tax. Now, one of the things we know as far as the Global Warming Solutions Act goes, which set these various targets originally, and there have been some interim targets on emissions added to that in the intervening years, is we're not going to meet them on the track we're on right now. And the latest greenhouse gas inventory for the nation was just released a little while ago, and it's gone up. And we're expecting the state's uh, latest one to be issued fairly shortly. Now, there's always lag time on it. And I believe what we will get when it comes out is really going to be 2019 figures. But they're going to be delayed. And of course, we have the pandemic in there that changed all kinds of things. So um, it's a little bit hard to know. And this has come in from some serious fire, this particular bill. I don't know whether the administration is going to get pushed to change giving the power all to the commissioner. Uh, legislators, many legislators are not happy having their fingers taken out of this sort of thing. But, you know, as you know, that can really slow down the works if everything has to go back through the legislature. As you said before, these, these energy bills are very, very, very difficult for legislators because it requires a lot of technical and detailed information, which these guys don't always have time to do. And isn't there a tug of war, so to speak, over promoting natural gas over renewable energy? GOP wants to expand natural gas access, but environmental activists not, not so keen on that. What's behind the split in, in the perspective here, from what you know? Well, first of all, the administration is not behind expanding natural gas, and I would be absolutely shocked if that happened. The commissioner, the governor, as have most of the commissioners and governors around New England, New York, New Jersey, you know, New England being part of our grid, are not interested in expanding natural gas. But the backbone of the dispute is that in Connecticut and throughout much of New England, we use natural gas for two things. One, we use it to run power plants to provide electricity, and the other is we use it for heat. And because there has been no expansion, there's really uh, of the of the pipelines, pipeline expansion just 
has not happened, and honestly, I would seriously doubt it's going to happen. In, in very cold periods, there's just not enough capacity to get all that gas for both heat and electricity, and essentially heat has first dibs. So they get the gas, and if you need more power to run your grid, you have to fall back on other types of power, which often are backup, what they call peaking plants, don't run very often, but when they do, they're pretty dirty. Um, we don't have any coal peakers anymore, but we do have oil, or we buy some dirty stuff from somewhere else. Uh, we had an instance around Christmas time where it was very cold. You might remember that. Uh, listeners might remember that. What happened then was one of our sources of power, which is often Canadian hydropower, was just not available. The price spiked to for a short period of time. Granted, it was only you know a day or so. To prices I've never seen. I mean, they were you know, in the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of dollars, usually when it gets past $50, uh, folks start freaking out. This was way up there. And that was the issue of just not enough gas compounded by the war in Ukraine, where a lot of natural gas is being liquefied and then uh, sent to Europe uh, where they've they've been hurting for natural gas too, although they're making some very very rapid shifts to renewable power. So to your original question of you know folks who want to see expansion of natural gas, I wouldn't hold my breath on that one. Tough nut to crack. There were some legislators that expressed concerns with words like, uh, "Well, in ten years, when you flip on the light switch, you might still be in the dark." Is that is that hyperbole, or is there an honest concern there? Well, there's a lot of stuff on the horizon, and I guess you have to pardon the pun on that one, because one of the up-and-coming things is really offshore wind. Now, it's moving a lot more slowly than we had anticipated. Part of that is due to the Trump administration, which basically slow-walked permitting on that. The Biden administration is pushing pretty hard, but Things have still slowed down for a bunch of different reasons. Um, it's moving more slowly, I should say, for a bunch of different reasons. You know, people get confused with offshore wind. It's not like onshore wind. Onshore wind is what we call intermittent. Sometimes the wind blows, sometimes it doesn't. The most obvious intermittent power source is, is solar. You don't get any when there's no sunshine. Offshore wind is not intermittent. It's variable. Sometimes it's stronger than others, but anybody who's been out on a boat for more than five minutes knows it's pretty windy all the time. And it can provide huge amounts of power, huge amounts of power. Uh, I'll give you a comparison. The millstone, the two millstone units together, which provide about, along with Seabrook, provide about a third of the power for all of New England. Uh, that's about 2,100 megawatts. You know, we've got more than that already planned just for coming into Connecticut. So you can replace, you know, something the size of a nuclear plant with offshore wind facilities. I would also mention this. This was very interesting. Just recently, it was actually Easter weekend, 
ISO New England, that's, those are the grid operators for New England, reported that they had set a new low for power needs on that weekend. That meant there was the least amount of power they'd ever reported that they needed. It broke a previous record set just about a year ago. Now, granted, it was a weekend. It was a holiday weekend. It was nice and sunny. And that sunny was the component in that, you know, a lot of folks have, have rooftop solar. And it really does take a bite out of grid demand, especially during what we call shoulder seasons, spring, fall, where you don't really need air conditioning and you don't really need heating. So you're not using a lot of power. This stuff makes a difference. And as we move forward, when you turn the switch, the power <laughs> will come on. More people are putting storage in with solar systems. Storage is becoming more prevalent uh, for other forms of power. There's actually a piece of legislation, a pretty decent-sized piece of legislation this session, which may make a go of it, which would pull some of the caps off our various solar programs, not pull them off, but at least raise them somewhat to get more solar in there. You start adding up all these little bits and pieces, yeah, unless everybody ran out and bought an EV tomorrow and tried to plug it in, I think your lights will come on. There are some environmental advocates who are concerned that you know, we talk about um, the wind power and various sources for, for energy, and, and some people are, are pretty well informed, but they're concerned that there are many rate payers that may not fully understand why their rates do what they do, why they go up. Uh, how well informed do you think rate payers are about the process on the whole? Have you gotten sort of a feel about that as you talk to, uh, to people? I think the general consensus is I would not say that I've gone out to talk to people on this specifically, but I think the general consensus is on a scale of one to 10, we're probably down around one. I don't, people, it's complicated. I mean, if you've ever looked at what comes through Pura, it's really hard to understand the fact that there are two rate setting periods every year and we usually anticipate these changes it's still money out of people's pockets. Now, are there other ways to deal with it? Yeah. And that gets into issues of energy efficiency and, you know, just the fact that we have old housing stock in this region, a lot of it is not well insulated. And especially for low income folks, it is sometimes very difficult to even take advantage of some of these programs because there's all other kinds of problems that have to be fixed first. In the past, there has not been a lot of money to deal with that. That's changing a little bit. But the whole process is very slow, and it costs money. Legislators are often disinclined to appropriate money for that sort of thing. And, you know, I often will say, well, look at it from, you know, a pick your poison standpoint. Do you want to pay the money to help low income folks get the insulation that will help drive down their energy bills? Or do you want to spend the money for what's known as LIHEAP, which is uh, funding just to pay the bills? 
You know, so what do you want to do? Um, looking towards the future, I'm not sure the state is in a place where they're looking at putting solar on any kind of, say, low-income housing and stuff like that where they can or finding other ways of dealing with really at-risk populations to help them with this sort of thing over the long term. It's often very hard to get a legislator who, you know, runs for re-election every two years to agree to spend money right before they're up for re-election, which is almost constant. So it's a really tough cycle. This past winter was really rather mild. Mm-hmm. Has that changed from, from what you've been able to see? Has that changed how this issue, the energy issue, is, is being addressed compared to, say, past years? Any difference between this year and years past? In terms of the mild winter versus not, Mm. not really, because the flip side of it is summer, where it's a whole lot hotter. If you're turning on air conditioning fans, whatever, it's still going to cost money then. So you may be trading one for the other. And honestly, this summer may well be interesting in that The science people who know this stuff are predicting uh, there's about a 50-50 shot at an El Nino, which loosely translated for folks around here means it's going to be hot. So we'll see. We had some real drought conditions last year. It wasn't super, super hot where we had endless 90-degree days, but it was sort of this relentless high 80s. So people were pretty uncomfortable. You know, you get into all kinds of health issues with that as well. So you're kind of, again, it's a pick your poison. You're trading one for the other. I'm talking with Jan Ellen Spiegel. She writes about the environments uh, and about energy for CT Mirror, the online news publication. And we're talking about policies that our local lawmakers in Connecticut and New York are considering or have already approved. Let's move on to... uh, to garbage, to waste. Um, in his budget, Governor Lamont presented a rather ambitious plan to revamp Connecticut's waste disposal and recycling system. But as with other bills, that plan seems to have been narrowed somewhat in committee. What, what happened to it? And why did lawmakers decide to sort of reduce the focus of the bill? I'm not sure it's so reduced now. Mm-hmm. It's a big bill with a lot of pieces in it. But what I'm being told is this is still under major discussion. This could change a whole lot more between now and the end of the session. It's a very big bill. You know, one of its key components is to essentially establish some sort of agency that could at least pick up some of the slack from the what Mira did, which of course, is the the huge now-closed trash-to-energy facility that took in from many, many, many cities and towns a lot of different waste. It was recycling. It was, you know, just regular trash. So that's part of the focus. There is also a lot having to do with food waste, which has been a real focus in recent times, 
food waste is widely considered the thing to get out of your trash, especially if you're doing a waste to energy plant. It's heavy, it's wet. If you're paying to have, have it dumped, heavy is gonna cost more. Wet means if you're doing trash to energy, it's not gonna burn very well. It is widely considered a good thing to get out. This bill, the way it sits now, will require more institutions to start separating out food waste. So it, like schools and, yeah, and what have you. Things <clears throat> like that, which were exempt before. The distance from a processing facility is still, I believe, 20 miles. If you were farther away, you wouldn't have to do it. The, the weight that you have to generate would still be about the same, um, but it's also a sliding scale, you know, as the, the weight goes lower over time. There is also a component in there that would require just, you know, food waste has got to be out of there by, I think it was 2028. We'll see if that piece of it makes it through. If any listeners out there are already separating their food waste out, I think what they're probably seeing is, oh my goodness, I have no trash left. It's a huge portion of it, and there, are, there have been pilot projects around the state that have worked pretty well. There's a lot of uh, communities trying to do this either on their own or using some state funds that have been made available. So I think the general sense among cities and towns is that this is a, and I've talked to many, many of them over time, that this is a really good thing to do. We have to figure out a way to do it so we're not having to drive this stuff all the way across the state. We've got to find a better system to make it easier for us. You know, we only have one anaerobic digester in the state, which converts food waste into power. It's been a really, really slow slog trying to get others. We've had many fall through. Even this one almost didn't make it. It took so long to get permitted. There's a lot of different things going on around the state already. How this legislation seeks to, in a sense, capitalize on that, I don't know. We'll, we'll see what happens there. There's also the ability for the, for the DEP commissioner to solicit requests for proposals for whole new waste systems. Now, there are countries around the world that do this kind of thing in other ways. Whether we're going to get that creative, I don't know. But there are other ways of dealing with trash other than sticking it in a landfill or burning it. Some of that's in this bill, which involves what we call stewardship, extended producer responsibility. So the producer of certain types of things will have to be responsible for its death. We already do this with a few things, paint, mattresses, gas canisters, which often made their way into uh, burn facilities, which can be a little dangerous. Tires is a separate bill, but I think it might end up in there. They're talking about packaging. Um, that so was what I was going to ask you about packaging, because so much of our waste, even when you get the food out, seems to be, you know, bubble wraps or paper or pieces of cardboard that can't be recycled, just the packaging that comes along with even small items. 
Right. And there is a packaging component in there. We'll see if it makes it through. You know, a lot of the cardboardy stuff is already recycled. You know, there's questionable how much of it really does get recycled. Um, what there's not in there that there has been in the past is trying to get industry into the state that actually processes this stuff in different ways. We're doing a little of it, but not like some of our neighbors are. Uh, European countries, you know, tend to separate out a whole lot more than we separate out as far as extended producer responsibility. Canada, parts of Canada have been way ahead on that where you're getting, you know, the, the, the makers of this stuff to take care of its end of life. But again, this is another big bill and how much of it survives I don't know. <laughs> we'll see. I understand Governor Lamont and uh, Deep also support transporting something like 860,000 tons of waste to Ohio and uh, Pennsylvania. That would be on a yearly basis. Uh, not everybody agrees that's a good idea. Right now, we don't have much of a choice. We do not have enough burn capacity here. Um, we have a few plants left. Um, one of them, the one in Bridgeport, is may not be long for this world. <laughs> um, and it's got it. We don't have open landfills. We haven't in years. Um, so it's got to go somewhere. And these are the places they're going, which uh, you know begs the question of this legislation if the commissioner of the department of energy and environmental protection can request make requests for proposals for okay come up with a new system here then you know then we'll see when we're talking about uh, earth week we got to talk about the air too i've got a question that's not directly about legislation but it's about clean air in February, the EPA rejected many state remediation plans for complying with the, the 2015 Natural Ambient Air Quality Standards. The EPA also told those states they've got to come up with better plans by March, and if they didn't do that, then the feds would sort of come in and do it for them. And this falls under the longstanding good neighbor provision of the Clean Air Act. On March 15th, the EPA released its final plan. Uh, a couple of things. Could you first remind us what the Good Neighbor Plan is and then uh, talk about, from what you've uh, been able to understand, what the EPA's latest plan will do? Well, starting with the last part first, what what the EPA has done will hopefully for eastern states, not the least of which is Connecticut, keep the states to the west of us from sending us their air pollution, <laughs> mostly from their power plants. There's been longstanding provisions within the Clean Air Act that want to make certain that cross-state pollution doesn't occur. That's, you know, really the, the core of the good neighbor policy. You don't want to send your dirty air uh, to other states. The airflow in the U.S. goes from west to east, so all those nice still existing coal plants and oil plants out in the Midwest send us all kinds of stuff. The, the tailpipe of the nation, I think, is well, what yeah. I've heard <laughs> yeah. described um, as. But 
there are ambient air quality standards that the Clean Air Act sets that you have to meet. Connecticut consistently does not meet them. And while we have no coal burning plants here, we do have our own transportation issues, but we're also getting a lot of stuff from out of state. And we really can't meet our own ambient air quality standards without help from other states. Other states had been, as part of this transport region, there are a bunch of states in the in the Midwest, had never really been policed very well to meet uh, the standards that they were supposed to meet to keep the pollution out of here. And you got to understand this is the kind of pollution that in the heat of the summer, that's where your smog comes from. That's where your real dirty summer air comes from. After many court fights and everything else, the Biden administration finally came through and said, we're going to enforce these to all these west states to the west of us, you need to get to this level or we're going to get you to that level. And the final rule was issued in March, and it is requiring certain levels from these states. It's added a few more states in, and it's also delineating certain industries, other industries as well. And some of it's got to start kicking in this summer. Will they have the bandwidth to really police it and do anything about it? It's kind of a trade system that could work too, but we'll have to see how it plays out. As I, um, you know, again, if they're predicting an El Nino this summer and it gets really hot, it could be really, really hard to meet some of these levels, especially with a higher need for um, electricity for air conditioning and everything else. But we have a potential for finally getting this resolved in, in some way, shape, or form. We had actually, the state of Connecticut actually sued under the Obama administration and asked them to add a bunch more states to this, what's also known as the ozone transport system. And believe it or not, the Obama administration refused to do that. It refused to do that right before they left office and set a court date for the Trump administration. So that was kind of all she wrote there. A number of very interesting uh, bills connected with the environment that uh, Connecticut lawmakers have to deal with until the end of the session, which is uh, when? When's the session end? The June. Session, June, early June. Jan Ellen Spiegel is a freelance environment and energy reporter for the Connecticut Mirror, the CT Mirror online news publication. We've been talking about uh, the policies that lawmakers in Connecticut are considering or have approved that could shape our environmental laws for years to come. Thank you so much for spending so much time with us today. And I'd like to reserve some time near the end of the session or at the end of the session to check back in on what actually becomes law uh, in Connecticut. Okay, you got a deal and happy to help. <laughs> Thank you very much. Environmental justice has become a more prominent part of efforts to create a healthy planet for everyone. And as you've heard, it's shaping the policy that lawmakers are considering and approving in Connecticut and New York. So how does environmental justice work in the communities that it's meant to benefit? Joining me now is Alex Rodriguez. He's the first environmental justice specialist with Save the Sound based in New Haven, and he joins us now on Zoom. Welcome. Great to be here with you today. Thank you so much for the invitation. Certainly. For those who don't know, please tell us about Save the Sound and, and what the, your mission is at Save the Sound. 
So Save the Sound is a regional environmental organization. We lead environmental action in the Long Island Sound region. We fight climate change, save endangered lands, protect Long Island Sound and its rivers, and work with nature to restore ecosystems. And to define what we're talking about further, we talk about environmental justice quite a bit. What does that really mean? Environmental justice is the intersection of racial justice, economic justice, a variety of socioeconomic concerns. All people have the right to live in healthy communities, yet people of color and people of low wealth are disproportionately subjected to serious pollution and environmentally destructive activities. And so our team at Save the Sound works hard to counteract this discrimination through the policies that we push, in addition to the more scientific work pushed by my colleagues in the Water Quality Department and the Ecological Restoration Team. And they're subjected, people in these communities are subjected to these conditions through no fault of their own. That is correct. We acknowledge the intersection that environmental justice has between the fights for civil rights, environmental health, a big piece of environmental justice is ensuring that marginalized communities have self-determination and don't become repositories for activity that harms both the environment and public health. And so through the policies we push and the scientific work, that was how we confront environmental justice at Save the Sound. As I mentioned, you're the first environmental justice specialist with Save the Sound. What kind of experience did you bring to this position? Did you need to take on this challenge, really? Yes. So I've been organizing, community organizing for seven years. And community organizing is about uplifting social movements. It's about uh, looking at who is in the room and uh, bringing them to the decision-making table and storytelling, sharing our power as a well-defined environmental org in the region and helping individuals that are the most impacted by these issues refine their stories and combat these issues, whether it be policy or whether it be sharing their stories on the radio or a variety of other things is key to uplifting environmental justice. So you're engaging, a lot of your work is engaging directly with communities that are on the front lines of environmental change and pollution. How do you identify these communities? Do they come to you? Are you reaching out, surveying? How do people know that they're being subjected to these conditions if they're unfortunately used to them? Mm -hmm. There is a variety of uh, materials at my disposal to uh, help identify communities overburdened by pollution. So the Department of Energy and Environmental Protection has a mapping tool on their website that they have crafted with support from the Department of Economic and Community Development and various other stakeholders. This map allows them to determine communities that are economically distressed. And in addition, the proximity that these communities have to certain affecting facilities, such as gas power plants, such as incinerators, water treatment facilities, and so forth, that helps us determine environmentally distressed communities. On a complementary tool that Save the Sound has at its disposal is our uh, soundhealthexplorer.org website. 
This map allows you to see swimmable beaches, fishable areas of water, and, uh, and so forth. That work is informed by the United Water Study that Save the Sound takes part in every year and uh, trains community scientists to help us take samples of various areas of Long Island Sound and show communities in a report every couple of years, the Long Island Sound Beach Report, show these communities the cleanliness of their water and what beaches would be safe to swim in, what beaches would be safe to attend, but not necessarily swim in, maybe just put your feet in the water, things like that. We want to make science as friendly as possible and uh, relate it to people's realities. You mentioned the sort of brick and mortar causes of pollution that people in affected communities have to deal with. Something that's uh, less specific, but certainly as evident, conditions related to climate change. Do you also work on that level in connection with communities that are experiencing poor conditions that are being exacerbated by warmer temperatures and higher water levels, that sort of thing. There are acquaintances, colleagues uh, that I've made in my years organizing, such as uh, the American Lung Association in Connecticut that release a state-of-the-air report, I believe on an annual basis, that helps me communicate uh, the urgency of poor air quality in certain communities. We also have the Yale Center on uh, Climate Change and Health, Yale Center of Health, that's uh, very helpful in communicating these issues for us to use in our everyday climate communications. And in a more partner sense, I am a part of the Equity and Environmental Justice Advisory Council, which is co-chaired by Commissioner Katie Dykes of the DEP, and uh, Dr. Mark Mitchell, who is a longtime advocate for environmental justice. He's a medical doctor and he is a professor of climate change and health. And I look up to Dr. Mitchell as well as the work that's been led by the Connecticut Coalition for Environmental and Economic Justice. Their executive director is Sharon Lewis and Dr. Mitchell, Sharon, and uh, many others have helped me understand uh, the landscape these past seven years and have worked in coalition with me to pass climate pieces of legislation. There was a couple bills last year that addressed a uh, carbon-free electricity standard codifying Governor Lamont's uh, executive order, as well as the Connecticut Clean Air Act, which was a superstar clean transportation bill that is going to help Connecticut electrify its public and private fleets by 2040. What's the connection between environmental justice problems in communities around the Sound, be it Connecticut or New York, and the Sound itself? Your mission to keep the Sound clean and, and usable and healthy for those who use it. What's the connection between the work that you're doing and the actual health of the Sound? For a long time, I've tackled policies that deal with mitigation of carbon pollution. And there is a piece of legislation right now called uh, SB 1147, uh, an act concerning the environmental justice program of the Department of Energy and Environmental Protection. This is a bill that would address uh, cumulative impacts on communities in Connecticut, communities overburdened 
by environmental hazards and allow health considerations to be taken into effect as well because deep has a list of what they consider what them and DECD consider the top 25 most environmentally and economically distressed communities. And there are also census blocks that have populations of people that are in a considerable proximity to uh, affecting facilities that is uh, taken into account. At the moment, the Department of Energy and Environmental Protection, the Siting Council, do not have the authority to deny permits for affecting facilities. And so this legislation would correct that by giving them the power to deny these polluting hazards. Because we're in the 21st century today, Tom, I think a lot of people can tell what is a green sustainable business versus a business that is there, probably an essential pillar during the time of the Industrial Revolution, but today probably isn't uh, serving its maximum purpose and is just an eyesore and being a poor neighbor to its host community. I'm looking out for people who suffer from respiratory illnesses, asthma, COPD, and cancer. When I think about this policy, when I think about my role within the Equity and Environmental Justice Advisory Council, this work is very personal to me. I've had family impacted by Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico in 2017. And when I observed the previous administration's response to that, it was clear that environmental racism was alive and needed to be combated by people most impacted and that our traditional environmental orgs needed to play a bigger role in uplifting these stories and sharing resources for us to combat those injustices. Another of your efforts, outreach programs, is something called Young Enviro Leaders Storytelling Series and Environmental Justice Storytelling Series. Could you tell us more about that? Because it sounds certainly by the title that you're attempting to reach uh, young minds with this. That I am. To clarify, there is a Young Environmental Leaders Storytelling Series that is a part of a program that I established at Save the Sound called the Youth Eco Advocacy Corps Program. And the Youth Eco Advocacy Corps Program is something I established to engage individuals under 30 on policy issues that we lead on at Save the Sound from rodenticides to climate accountability to stricter permitting rules, as I mentioned just a little while ago. There is a big mass of young people that want to make an impact in the fight for environmental justice and climate justice. You know, groups such as the Sunrise Movement really made headways in 2018 when they held their uh, peaceful sit-ins in the offices of congressional leaders demanding a Green New Deal. And I like to think that Connecticut environmentalists, uh, such as my organization and our partners at the Connecticut Coalition for Climate Action, I like to think that we are pushing Green New Deal-like principles. But to go back to the youth engagement, I hold monthly Youth Eco Advocacy Corps meetings. And at these meetings, I give a briefing of uh, what's been happening at Save the Sound regarding certain policies any other programs of interest, uh, such as the Connecticut cleanup series that we lead every year for people to get involved in other matters. I also allow young people to share what sustainability projects they're leading on, and whether it be Cheshire, whether it be 
New Haven, Stanford, and uh, you know I mentioned uh, New Haven and Stanford in particular because there was an immense amount of interest from Youth Eco Advocacy Corps members in pursuing municipal climate emergency declarations. And this has involved them connecting with their neighbors in their respective towns, meeting with their local officials, and developing language for long-term sustainability plans that they would like to see established in their respective communities. Stanford, in particular, wanted to see a uh, carbon-free electricity target enacted even sooner than Governor Lamont's target. And so that's just to give you an idea of the kind of work this has involved. I have established an environmental justice storytelling series as well to engage fellow colleagues, such as the CPEN, Community Placemaking Engagement Network, led by Doreen Abubakar in New Haven. I've shared her story on our blog so that people can see the great work she has done regarding keeping beehives, training urban farmers, and um, getting in touch with her next West River Watershed Festival happening this summer. I do this because this work involves community building, capacity building, and sharing power. If we work in silos, we will not get anything done. What's your impression of the younger folks who are, well, the ones you're involved with, obviously are enthusiastic about dealing with the environments, coming up with solutions to problems caused by climate change and dealing with issues connected with environmental justice. But what about the larger sort of group of, of young people? Do you get the impression that there's of movement in this direction? Is it something that you think is different than uh, what has come before in terms of the environmental movement, which stretches back at least to, you know, the 60s with Silent Spring? Glad you asked that, Tom. I, I think that I noticed groups such as the Sunrise Movement, Connecticut, and the New Haven Climate Movement, among other youth-led groups in the state, that are really great at pinning down intersectionality in their messaging, linking climate justice with housing justice and immigrant rights, and really being unapologetic about the advocacy they pursue and its intersection with social issues. So so they um, find this all, all interconnected, then it's not a strange concept for them to connect all of the issues that, that you just discussed, which... You mentioned silos before are sometimes dealt with individually mm -hmm. and not in terms with how they affect one another. That That is correct. I, I notice there is a lot more willingness to talk about fair rent or rent caps, if you will. There is more willingness to talk about health care. There is more willingness to talk about raising the minimum wage. Uh, I notice this from youth-led groups, and I respect them for it. There is an unapologeticness that I've noticed from activists of the Gen Z generation I really admire. I think that my generation, the millennials, I, I'm, I'm 29 and I'm, I came from West Hartford. I grew up in West Hartford and uh, I have one idea of what environmental justice is. I shared with you my story earlier about having family impacted by Maria. Mm and how my you know, my family comes from Puerto Rico, me today, Connecticut. I was 
pleased to grow up here. It was a great place to grow up. Uh, but I notice a lot of these other social issues uh, coming into, I don't want to say conflict, I want to say of equal concern at the legislature when we're at the Connecticut Capitol. I see many folks of uh, various demographics advocating for various things. And I, uh, I want to keep organizing inward and utilizing existing networks and making new networks to make a more just movement. If I could ask you a personal question, is it the response that you saw to Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico, the reason that you chose to become a community organizer to work in environmental justice? Mm. I was a couple years into the movement when Hurricane Maria took place there was a water bottling concern in Bloomfield that West Hartford residents uh, took issue with as well. A water bottle company called Niagara was being lured by the Metropolitan District Commission and they were offering them land in Bloomfield and the Bloomfield Town Council signed off on it. Very shady engagement manner going on there. Unfortunately, activists could not prevent the sale of water to Niagara, which is paid for by MDC ratepayers. We could not stop that from happening, but that advocacy did lead to, eventually lead to a state water plan, which aims to reduce the amount of influence that private interests can have over our public water supply. It identifies water as a public trust in the state of Connecticut. And so these things do connect and there are wins that we achieve sometimes, but it takes a village and it takes resilience and it takes a sharing of power and resources, as I've been saying. Alex Rodriguez is the environmental justice specialist, the first one, as a matter of fact, with Save the Sound based in New Haven. Alex, thanks so much for your time and your insights about uh, the work that you do. We appreciate it. Thank you, Tom. It was phenomenal being here today. New York voters passed a historic environmental bill last November. It's called the Clean Water, Clean Air, and Green Jobs Environmental Bond Act, and it lets the state borrow $4.2 billion to fund environmental projects. We've asked Julie Tai, the president of the New York League of Conservation Voters, to share her perspective on the impact these projects could have as they get underway this year. We've spoken before. Julie, welcome back to The Full Story. Thank you so much for having me on. Uh, certainly. Before we get into the specifics, what is the role of your organization now that this measure is law? Will the New York League of Conservation Voters help put the Bond Act into action? What's your connection with it? Sure. So the League is a statewide environmental advocacy organization that seeks to educate, engage, and empower New Yorkers to be effective advocates for the environment. And of course, we advocate for policies and we hold candidates accountable for advancing environmental policies during the political process. In this case, we, you know, we are not an organization that has, you know, that buys property to protect or does projects. We are an accountability organization. So we want to make sure that the state is, is moving the money, that it's getting to places around the state so that there's fairness. Uh, we want to make sure that they're investing at least 35% of the funds in disadvantaged communities as they're required to. And our goal is to have uh, a tool that the public can keep an eye on what projects are being funded and where they are 
um, and what types of projects so that we can really make sure that people connect the dollars that they voted on and approved with projects in their communities. So the $4.2 billion will fund projects that are divided into three basic categories, I understand. Four, four big categories. Four categories. Well, I've got three here. Advancing okay. environmental justice, mitigating climate change, and job creation. Which one am I missing there? Oh, so the way the, the, the buckets themselves are split up is open space and recreation, water infrastructure improvement, climate mitigation, and then flood risk reduction and resiliency. Those are sort of the big buckets, but yes, it's going to be it's going to be creating those three things within those categories of funds that can that are going to be made available. If we can talk about environmental justice to uh, to start out, according to the New York State website, 35% of the funds will go to help communities that are significantly impacted by environmental changes. Uh, are those changes that, that they're talking about, are those attributed to climate change more than sort of direct man-made changes like trash dumps or, or dirty industry? No, I think it's both, right? So it's going to be both, you know, communities that are at risk uh, because of climate change and also communities that have been overburdened by pollution for a long time. So that could be a community that's negatively impacted by, you know, an expressway running through their through their community and lots of trucks associated with that. Um, there could be a community that is impacted by power plants uh, that's polluting the, the community. So I think that's how they're they're gonna do that. I believe they're gonna use the disadvantaged community criteria that the Department of Environmental Conservation recently announced uh, that was uh, developed in work, you know, in concert with a working group required under the Climate Leadership and Community Protection Act. I was gonna um, ask so you, yeah, next, uh, how are communities in the state uh, identified as, as being most vulnerable to, to those negative circumstances? Yep. So I, I believe that's the criteria that they're going to be using from the state. What's your take on how the funds will be distributed? So one of the things that we are going to learn soon is that the state is going to be doing a listening tour right, where they're going to talk about some of some of more of what types of projects could be funded. Um, and I think a little bit more about how the money is going to flow. Right. So some of the dollars will be spent directly by the state. Could be that the Department of Environmental Conservation acquires some land, for example, to conserve or the State Parks Department improves, um, you know, Jones Beach, for example, that could be a potential project that the State Parks Department could do. But a lot of other funds are going to be competitive grants. So there'll be a variety of agencies that would administer that. So, you know, for local parks, for example, the State Parks Department would usually uh, administer those funds and it would be made available to local governments and not for profits um, to potentially do work. So you could have like a, a friends of, you know, your local park that could they could get money to do a capital project. So that's, I think, by and large, how most of the dollars are going to be funded. Some of them, I think, we're expecting to flow out earlier. For example, the water infrastructure money, because there's been the Water Improvement Infrastructure Act that's been going since 2015. That's really how a lot of those water dollars are going to flow. So the State Environmental Facilities Corporation uh, will soon, I believe, be because um, they've already had a, a public comment period on their criteria, uh, they'll be uh, rolling out a new grant application, I believe, where local governments will be able to apply for those dollars um, to help them with various 
drinking water and wastewater infrastructure projects. Another question about uh, communities that would uh, benefit from this. Uh, Another thing on the New York State website, uh, it says that climate change is a threat multiplier for some places, for some communities. What, What does that mean? So really it means you're already an at-risk community, right? And now when you have climate change, you're going to then be amplified what the risks are associated with that. So if you live in a community, for example, that doesn't have very many trees, and so it gets very hot in the neighborhood in the summertime, but then you also have, you know, you have air pollution from uh, nearby facilities, that increased heat that we're going to see is going to make it much more dangerous for those people who are already, you know, immunocompromised because of the air pollution in the neighborhood, right? So if you already have a respiratory ailment, right, then then on top of that, you're adding this extreme heat from climate change, then that's going to put you more at risk. You mentioned extreme heat as a problem for some communities and another focus of the Bond Act will be to develop a statewide extreme heat action plan. What is that plan and how will the Bond Act help develop one? Sure, so one of the categories of funds that are available under the climate mitigation pot is being able to tackle extreme heat and making sure that we have a plan. You know, we do, we've seen in New York City, for example, has an extreme heat plan where they've tried to identify places that are really heat vulnerable and how can we make sure that we're, we're tackling that and providing support for things like cooling centers because it, it's not gonna be affordable to give everyone air conditioners where it's the places where we want to invest in urban tree or urban forestry, for example, um, so that you have more trees because we know from you know the New York Times did a story last year that talked about how neighborhoods that have a lot of trees could be nine degrees cooler um, than neighborhoods that don't because you have that concentration of of heat um, and so those are are areas where we would see opportunities for the state to be investing bond act dollars to help make that happen. So literally planting more trees. Yes, mm-hmm. uh, literally planting more trees can help to reduce the temperature as well as absorb carbon, as well as absorb stormwater. It's amazing what uh, a tree growing in Brooklyn can do. (laughs) Very good. Uh, Mitigating uh, climate change is kind of a a broad phrase, and it does look like New York will prioritize reducing greenhouse gas emissions through the Bond Act. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. And two of the like within that pot of money, and it's uh, $1.5 billion, so it's the largest pot of money is being made available for climate mitigation. There's $500 million that's been earmarked for electric school buses. Um, so that will make sure that there's funds that can help local schools transition from diesel buses, which is what a lot of school buses use now, to electric school buses. Um, and that was actually accompanied by a law that requires all school buses throughout the state, all 50,000 school buses in New York State, to transition to be electric by 2035. Um, and that's really important because a lot of the bus depots are in those overburdened, uh, those overpollutioned communities, those neighborhoods. And oftentimes the air quality within the school bus can be worse than outside of the school bus, which means kids are literally getting pollution in their lungs on their way to and from school. So that's one chunk of it. And then, and the governor specifically referenced this in her, uh, her press release, uh, some of that money is going to go towards their um, clean green schools initiative. That's going to help serve a thousand underserved or under-resourced public schools 
and help them to um, to be much more energy efficient, to help them to you know potentially put solar panels on their roofs or put geothermal in so they can move away from using a fossil fuel powered boiler um, for their heating and cooling needs. Um, so that's like another big chunk of money is going to go towards the Clean Green Schools Initiative and other um, public buildings. So that could be, um, you know, investing in in a SUNY school like Stony Brook to help them with projects to decarbonize and become more energy efficient. It could be the state office building uh, that could, you know, needs to be um, retrofit to be more energy efficient. So that's going to be, a, those are two really big chunks of money that will be available for tackling uh, buildings and school buses. What about sea level rise in connection with climate change? New York, of course, the coastal state, the, the city and uh, Long Island. How will the Bond Act address rising water levels? Sure. So there's $1.1 billion that's being made available for flood risk reduction. Um, and there's a couple of different ways that those funds can be used. Some of that is making sure that we're restoring wetlands like tidal wetlands that could help to provide natural absorption of, um, of, of seawater as we're dealing with wave action. It can help to attenuate those waves and make them less powerful, um, which is really, really a a relatively inexpensive way of, of protecting our inland communities uh, who are at risk there, um, or freshwater wetlands, um, particularly for upstate New York, where there's more um, you know, streams that are adjacent to wetlands that, that could be helped with this. There's funding for, for the first time, a proactive home buyout program. Um, right now, we, don't, we only do buyouts of, of structures after they've been devastated. You know, so for example, there were a number of homes that were bought out because they were destroyed by Superstorm Sandy. Um, there, are other, there are other neighborhoods that might be at risk and we know they're at risk. They just haven't been devastated yet by that kind of a storm where we could go in and buy, the state could go in and buy them out and the, the property would have to be used for you know, a passive purpose for a flood protection for a park, you know, passive, some kind of passive use so that you're not putting things in harm's way and you're helping to protect the community adjacent to that. So that's the first time. But there's also opportunities to elevate homes and structures to make sure that they're they're out of harm's way uh, for what we know to be the, the, the greatest likelihood of sea level rise, um, you know, going forward. So those are, are some of the categories. We obviously would much prefer to see, for example, structures moved out of harm's way prior to a devastating event like that happening, prior to losing, you know, back in the day, you know, you used to have a, a, a wedding album and not just a, a, a disc drive of your, of your uh, wedding pictures. So losing those kinds of family, um, you know, historical items are, are really devastating. And so this would be much more beneficial way for folks to deal with that. Julie Tai is the president of the New York League of Conservation Voters, and we're talking about the $4.2 billion New York Environmental Bond Act. Much of this, uh, many of these projects obviously requires um, uh, workers to, uh, to put them into action. Uh, I understand 84,000 or more green jobs are expected to be developed as a result of these projects. Is that something that the League... Uh, keeps an eye on too how the how the projects are coming along in terms of the workforce that's needed to make them happen. We've been working really well with labor to make sure that 
um, we are helping to get jobs as a result of all of this, right? We had a study done, our, our, our coalition had a study done by AECOM that, that came up with that, uh, that expectation of about 84,000 jobs. Most of those will be for construction type jobs, you know, so that could be the operating engineers who are helping to put in pipes. It could be the laborers who are helping to do construction. It could be the carpenters who are, you know, helping to build things. You know, we we see that there's a lot of job prospects as a result of this, and we want to make sure that we're delivering on, on this going forward. We know water infrastructure 100% provides a significant amount of jobs. Um, and we want to make sure that these other projects are all delivering on that too. Um, because we believe firmly that like a good environment and a strong economy go hand in glove and they really feed upon each other. Um, and it's not anathema to have the two things working in concert. Which projects are getting underway sooner than later in connection with the Bond Act? So you know, no, no projects have moved forward yet because we're still going through process. I do think water infrastructure projects will be the ones that move forward first because, as I mentioned earlier, they have a structure that already exists that they can be adding money to. They'll actually, I think, be able to combine that with some of the, the state funding that we've been providing, potentially with some of the federal infrastructure dollars uh, to help make sure that there's a, a bigger amount of money available. But I do think water infrastructure projects will be the first ones. Um, it is possible that the state could move forward with some some of their land or parks projects earlier rather than later. Um, some of these other details are still being worked on. You know, for example, NYSERDA has been you know has been working uh, with a working group to identify what processes we need to do move forward to get those electric school buses out to the the money for the electric school buses out to school districts and what what process needs to be done and what outreach needs to be done. Um, and I think really we're gonna get a much better handle um, when we're coming out of the, the listening session that is going to start at the end of May um, in Buffalo first, but there will be one on Long Island in New York City. Um, there'll be virtual options so that I think we'll get a better handle and get input from the, the public and from um, you know, potential recipients like local governments and not-for-profits about the types of projects, the criteria that they're going to use, and the process that it's going to roll out in. So this is going to be something that takes a little bit of time, um, but we'll be seeing, I think, a lot of projects over the next couple of years. As you mentioned, uh, the League will be keeping tabs on uh, what's happening in connection with the projects that result from the Bond Act. Uh, how do you measure success as far as the projects go? Um. Getting them complete is always first. <laughs> I think we want to make sure that we're seeing improvements in our communities, right? We all know people need more access to parks. Uh, they need to make sure that our drinking water and our wastewater is is safe. The pipes are are often underlooked because they're underground, right? Everyone knows when there's a pothole, um, but you don't always realize until there's a manhole or a sinkhole that you have a problem with your pipes. So we'd like to, to make sure that we are getting uh, making a lot of progress towards reducing the amount of uh, of need we have in upgrading our water infrastructure and making sure people have um, access to you know water that does not have pollutants in it. I mean that's been something we've been working on for a number of years. You know Long Island has been ground zero on some of these um, dealing with um, you know one for dioxane, for example, which is something that most people in the rest of the state have no idea what it is. But in Long Island, it's been on the cover of Newsday. That brings everybody's attention to things, right? Um, I think making sure that we have, uh, you know, really statewide projects. I think that's important. 
um, making sure that we're delivering on the jobs that we're expecting. That's uh, you know, a measure of success. Uh, making sure our communities are, are safer from the risks of floods and storms. Um, that will be something that we'll be looking for um, to help measure the success of the Bond Act. But I have no doubt we will be able to, um, to see progress on uh, making sure that we have communities, making sure that the state in fact spends that 35, uh, at least 35% in those disadvantaged communities, those at risk from, from climate change and from pollution are actually getting projects that improve the community you know, and the, the health and safety of the people living there. What about timeliness? What kind of a window do you think uh, is reasonable to get, if not all of the work done, much of the work done? It seems like they're pretty big projects. They could stretch out well into the future. Well, you mentioned I the do, bu- the bus I is think, going to 2035. Yeah, and that's and that the this is this money's not going to last that long. Um, I would say the state is is trying to um, spend the money over five to ten years. Um, I think it will take probably closer to ten years to actually spend all the money. They could commit a lot of that money um, earlier than that, but uh, it will take some time because of the procurement processes um, that you know that are ensuring that there's fair bidding and a good use of tax dollars um, that will take a little bit of time. But certainly we're gonna urge the state to act quickly to make the dollars available to local governments and to not-for-profits and for them to then follow through and finish those projects in a timely manner. So is $4.2 billion enough? <laughs> Look, $4.2 billion is the largest investment the state has ever made in the environment. Uh, we expect that's actually going to leverage another, you know, four-plus billion dollars. So we expect that it would actually generate about $8.7 billion in, in projects uh, because this will enable local governments and the state to draw down some of those federal funds that we talked about, including Funds from the Infrastructure Act that Congress passed in 2021, funds from the Inflation Reduction Act that were passed in 2022. Um, and really, you know, it's a big chunk forward. Um, is this the end? No. Will we need more funding in the future? Absolutely. But it's also coupled with, you know, an annual environmental protection fund, um, which is now up to $400 million a year. We'll see what happens in the state budget, but we're expecting at least $400 million a year um, and another $500 million. Uh, at least from from traditional capital funding for water infrastructure. Um, so the answer is no, not enough, but it's a damn good start. <laughs> and where can individuals get more information about the progress of the Bond Act work? We're going to try to do something. We're not there yet, so I don't want to give you a website, but the state has created a, a website um, that they have launched, um, it's the it's a long website um so it's ny.gov backslash programs backslash clean dash water dash clean dash air dash and dash green dash jobs dash environmental dash bond dash act we will so post that on our website thing, <laughs> but i think if you just google new york state environmental bond act uh, you'll be able to find that because um, that is not the easiest website to just just track down. But we are uh, the um, New Yorkers for Clean Water and Jobs. I think we'll probably also have a website um, that we'll be contributing to to help provide uh, a, man, a way for people to keep track of where where the projects are um, and what stage they're in. Julie Tai is the president of the New York League of Conservation Voters. We've been talking about the $4.2 billion New York Environmental Bond Act. 
Thank you so much uh, for your time and sharing uh, what the league will be doing in connection with the Bond Act. We appreciate it. Thank you so much and happy Earth Day. Happy Earth Day. How might the Environmental Bond Act impact Long Island? We'll get a perspective on that question from Adrian Esposito, the executive director of the Citizens Campaign for the Environment based in Farmingdale. And she joins us uh, once again on Zoom. Welcome back to the full story. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. The Citizens Campaign uh, did advocate for the Environmental Bond Act, and uh, voters did approve that act in last November's election. And after that, you told the East Hampton Star that the act, quote, is really made for Long Island. We benefit the most. Uh, how so? That is so true. Um, we It actually looks like it was crafted to benefit Long Island. And the reason for that is funding is going to go for such things as protection against climate change, preserving land. We hardly have any left on Long Island. We have to preserve what is left. It'll help preserve some farmland. It will also help to upgrade uh, sewage treatment plants, as well as provide funding for filtration for water suppliers that have to filter out these new emerging contaminants, PFAS and 1,4-dioxane. Long Island has all those troubles. Uh, so this funding, which is significant, $4.2 billion, will be allocated in those four categories. Water infrastructure, land preservation, fighting climate change, and also um, what's called erosion control or flood control. This is, uh, if you can pardon the pun, uh, water under the bridge, but uh, <laughs> clearly the, the, the Bond Act obviously was, was approved. You're, you're talking about how much it will benefit Long Island. And, and there, was some, there was some pushback from uh, groups who were concerned about the amount of debt that uh, it might add to, uh, to the budget in, in New York. And with the kind of benefit that really is focused on Long Island, how do you interpret that that vote that it, it that it did? Uh, people did give it a thumbs up, even though much of perhaps upstate might have thought, well, this is a downstate thing. No, actually, 67 um, percent of the voters voted yes on a four point two billion dollar bond act. That tells you that clean water is not a political issue. It's a human issue. And that's what it tells me. It's a mandate. It's a mandate when 67% of the voters in this day and age who can't agree on many things can't agree on clean water and clean air. That's what this achieves. Doesn't matter where you live. Doesn't matter who you are. Doesn't matter any of your societal background. Clean water is a necessity. It is not a luxury item. So we are actually excited by the vote, to tell you the truth. Um, it really sends a message into the halls of Albany that the public is serious about clean water projects and we need them. You know, all over Long Island, if you look, but not just Long Island, throughout the state of New York, we have these old clunker, antiquated sewage treatment plants that are literally falling apart. Pipes are bursting in the street that, because they could be as much as 100 and 120 years old. So this kind of water infrastructure needs to be upgraded it creates jobs, but it also provides us with an essential need. Uh, back to something that's uh, more peculiar to Long Island, uh, coastal resiliency, something that uh, that you highlighted, that you talked about during the campaign for the Bond Act. And you've said, quote, we need to strengthen our wetlands. We need to make sure that 
We're prepared for sea level rise and coastal flooding and intense storms, and we can't do that by ignoring the problem. How does the Bond Act address that problem? What's the connection there? Bond Act can do many things to address that problem. The first one is that there's funding for restoration of wetlands. What that means is some of our wetlands, because of so much nitrogen flowing into the water, uh, they become very weak. The roots are no longer growing deep. They're growing very shallow. That means that when we have storms or winds or nor'easters, they're breaking apart. When they break apart, they can't protect the mainland. Those wetlands need to be restored and we need to stop the flow of nitrogen. The Bond Act could pay for that. We could also do projects like Patrick Village is doing. It's called a living shoreline. Replacing a hard bulkhead that doesn't really protect us against storms with a natural uh, shoreline filled with native vegetation and some rocks, gravel, boulders. But that also will be more resilient uh, to tides and flooding and wind and wave action. So there are things we can do along the coast with our shorelines, nature-based solutions, as they're called, uh, that will really protect us against wind, waves, and sea level rise. There are those who say that one of the problems with development is that it's still occurring along the coast, that with sea level rise, it's sort of a, uh, a problem that will uh, not, we've, did we lose uh, the connection there? Yeah. No, I'm good. I can uh, hear you fine. Oh, okay. My, my screen went black here. Um, oh, let okay. Me, let me refla- uh, rephrase I that. I see you. Or start again. <laughs> um, uh, okay, good. We're, we're still connected anyway. Um, there are those who say that, uh, that development along the coast is something that should really be abandoned in the, in the long term or even medium term. And uh, doing work to make sure that the coastline remains as it is is sort of, again, pardon the pun, but shoveling sand against the tide. Uh, but you're saying that nitrogen is really a key to at least delaying loss of coastline. I'm saying we should stop development along the coastline and we should cure our nitrogen pollution problem. We need to do both. You know, the uh, UN released their sixth climate change report last month in March. And what they said was, we need to take immediate action by this decade that we can no longer wait. Long Island's on the front lines of climate change impacts. We are very foolish. We are very short-sighted. And we are actually acting reckless and dangerously when we allow for homes and condo complexes and infrastructure to be put right on the shore. We know the sea level is rising. We know we're going to have a greater intensification of storms and hurricanes and nor'easters. We know that. So to put people in harm's way when we know there will be consequences to those actions is absolutely foolish, unnecessary, and irresponsible. You've also said that the Bond Act could help save 30,000 acres of undeveloped land on the island. Um, I guess when I think of Long Island, I don't think of, I know out, out east there's, there's more uh, undeveloped land, but where is this uh, 30,000 acres? Where, where does it live right now, and how can the Bond Act save it from development? Well, actually, there's a number of of different parcels of land. There may not be these giant tracts of 500 or 600 acres, like perhaps they have upstate or in the Adirondacks or Catskills. But what land we have left is of value. 
And it could be in, for instance, there's a nice patch of land uh, bordering Smithtown and Brookhaven. That is an imminent threat of development. Um, there are small parcels that can be used as parkland or just recharge for our groundwater. Uh, also, ecologic, uh, ecological value. Um, when you don't have a lot of land left, the wildlife and bird life, uh, bird life tend to congregate on these smaller parcels that are left and gives us greater reason and greater value to preserve them. So we have, um, according to the Suffolk County Planning Commission, 30,000 acres of land just in Suffolk County, and that doesn't really include farmland. So we can preserve family farms by buying the development rights. That keeps us as a, as a rural county. Uh, people don't know, but Suffolk County is the fourth largest agricultural county in the state of New York. And Bond Act, so, uh, Bond Act uh, money could, uh, could fund those purchases? Absolutely. Uh, and in fact, the funding for land preservation is set at a minimum of $650 million in the Bond Act law. You mentioned this before, and you touched on it again just a moment ago, uh, drinking water. And for several years, Long Island has uh, has struggled with contaminated groundwater and drinking water. And one of the more well-known problems is that toxic bloom out of uh, Bethpage caused by defense contractor Northrop Grumman started, uh, I guess, back when the company was building fighter jets for the for the Navy during the Vietnam War. Will the bill do anything to help stop the spread of that plume? No, because that plume is going to be paid for the remediation uh, and the restoration is going to be paid for by Grumman and the Navy. So we do not want to be using taxpayer dollars when we know who the polluter is and the polluters need to be held accountable. The funding in the Bond Act will be used to pay for such things as 1,4-dioxane, PFAS, PFOA, chemicals that are being found throughout Long Island drinking water that are highly toxic are linked to a very uh, various number of cancers, kidney cancer, testicular cancer, thyroid cancer, liver damage. We need to filter those chemicals out of our drinking water to make sure people are kept safe. And this funding can and will be used for those types of treatment technologies. And what's really great about that is not only will it allow us to have clean water, but it will allow us to continue to have affordable water because when the state's giving grants, that means we don't have to pay for it in our water bills. That's a good deal because we want clean water and we want to be able to afford that water. So we're excited about that part of the Bond Act as well. There was a story on NPR, on WSHU recently, in connection with with PFAS, P-F-A-S, being used in fertilizer. So what was happening was there were areas uh, of Massachusetts where uh, sludge, sewer sludge, was being reused or, or um, changed in its nature so that it could be used for, for fertilizer. However, uh, those chemicals had found its way into the sewer system, into the sludge, and then when it was reconditioned to use for fertilizer, it was even more concentrated, uh, causing a potential problem with the crops on which that fertilizer would be dropped. PFAS is being used on everything. It's really crazy. Uh, whether it's fertilizer, it's used in artificial turf. 
So we have students and kids going to play on this artificial turf and they're being exposed to this PFAS. It's used in food wrappers. People go to Taco Bell, McDonald's, their food is wrapped in this toxic chemical. That's going to be phased out and banned in New York State. Um, but it really has become ubiquitous in society. So whether it's in fertilizer or artificial turf or food wrappers or nonstick products, uh, that's how it ended up being found in our drinking water, literally throughout our soil source aquifer here in Long Island and in other parts of the nation as well. The good news is we can't filter it out. So the activated uh, granular carbon filtration systems are very effective in filtering it out down to zero or non-detect, which is less than two parts per trillion. Um, but we have to make sure that if it's found, our water suppliers have that technology and get it installed quickly and efficiently to protect us. Another issue that you touched on is the sewer system in Long Island, or I guess we should say a septic tank and cesspool systems that uh, contribute to the nitrogen pollution that you that you uh, pointed to before. How does the Bond Act uh, help upgrade the the systems, the sewer systems on the island? Well, again, I hate to keep saying it, but, you know, we get excited about sewer <laughs> cleanup. Um, look, Nassau County, 75 percent of Nassau County has sewers. Uh, in Suffolk, however, there's only about 30 percent of Suffolk that has sewers. The Bond Act could help with expanding that existing sewer infrastructure where it's appropriate in areas like Smithtown, where they really want it in their downtown area, Northport, Huntington, uh, the Bergen Point sewage treatment plant, Patchog, and also uh, there's a small one in Southampton and Port Jefferson. Those places can expand existing infrastructure and capture more nitrogen before it's released, not only into the aquifer, but also into our bays, harbors, and estuaries. Also, the Bond Act funding can be used to replace these clunker, antiquated septic and cesspool systems with new nitrogen-removing uh, systems. And that has been a great program going on in Suffolk. And we now have two to 3,000 uh, homes that have replaced them, and many more thousands are applying for grants that are available to do that as well. Do we know how much money out of the Bond Act will go toward upgrading sewer systems? In the Bond Act legislation, it says at least or minimum of $650 million will be allocated uh, for water infrastructure. You mentioned uh, nitrogen going into the bays, algal blooms, something that occurs fairly often uh, in Long Island bays connected with that nitrogen pollution. Uh, will the $1.1 billion going to protect drinking water and upgrading infrastructure, uh, the money going to upgrade sewer systems, uh, will, will that in any way be used to directly address algal blooms or uh, since the blooms are a result of other problems, sort of a, a symptom of a problem, uh, it'll be going toward the problem, not not the blooms themselves. It's going to go towards solving the problem. Mm -hmm. uh, and the reason I say that is because we can do so many things, not only remove nitrogen, which, which is great from sewage uh, and replacing septics and upgrading sewage treatment systems, but there's other things we can do too. We can implement a shellfish restoration plan. Shellfish are wonderful uh, water purifiers that can help remove nitrogen. We could 
do things such as replant seagrass beds. And these are underground vegetation or submerged aquatic vegetation as they're called. And they're great also at absorbing um, nitrogen, but also help protecting us against wave action. And they, prov they provide habitat for shellfish and finfish. So we can do programs with that. Um, we, there's seeding programs for clams and oysters and other um, you know, species. There's a lot we can do uh, and that is being done right now. We just need the funding. So the Bond Act provides the funding. The good news is we've done a lot of the research. So we have, for instance, a, you know, see, uh, we have a shellfish restoration plan going on in New York State and for Long Island. We have a seagrass plan that's being developed by the South Shore Estuary Reserve Council. We have programs that we can implement. We have the science. Now we're going to have the funding. So having the science and the funding and the projected projects that go along with them. Uh, I want to ask you about uh, the people who would actually put them into action. It's estimated the Bond Act will go to support something like 100,000 jobs in, in the state. I'm wondering how many of those would come to Long Island, and would there be perhaps a problem in finding the people that, uh, that are needed to, to work on these projects? Well... I'm not sure about finding people who are needed. I, I think we can do it. Mm -hmm. Look, these are jobs people want, right? If you're doing reseeding of of uh, clams or oysters, uh, scallops, we have the people who want to do that. We just need the funding to do it. So the jobs would be diversified. Upgrading a sewage treatment plant, those are plumbers and construction workers and electricians. We have people who want to work in those fields. Uh, replacing the septic systems. We have companies who have come into Long Island because they know that their new systems can be sold here and there's a high demand for them. Jobs that we call them green jobs, they're moving in, you know, to Nassau and Suffolk County. And again, anything to do with restoring our maritime culture, uh, finfish restoration, shellfish restoration, we know we have the, the people for that too. So it really is going to be a diversification of all different types of jobs whether it's going to be an electrician or a plumber or a marine scientist or um, a fisherman, all of those people could benefit from this type of program and, and job creating programs. You mentioned a number of projects connected to the Bond Act. Uh, which ones do you think might uh, get underway this year or, or the soonest? Well, I have good news for everybody. Mm. Uh, on Earth Week, the governor already announced the first $225 million spending of the Bond Act, and it's going to go for um, to, for upgrading our sewage treatment plants. And that's, I think, a great step forward. So the promise of the Bond Act was clean water. The promise is right now, as we speak, starting to be delivered. That's what the public voted for. The public understands we live in the 21st century and we should be treating our wastewater not just discharging it into our bays and our ocean and our drinking water. It needs to be uh, upgrade. It needs to be treated in a way that is done with 21st century technology. Environmental projects that maybe the Bond Act does not deal with. Are, are there many of those? Do you think what what uh, what's waiting in the wings that would need additional funding? Do you think? 
Well, I have to tell you one thing that happens is we never run out of ideas to protect the earth. Um, look, we're right now we're in the middle of a big energy trans transition um, to really do away with our old clunker power plants and transition to renew clean, safe power, including offshore wind, large scale solar, battery storage backup. All of those things are bringing jobs uh, to Long Island and New York State as well. Things that also need to be done is we're going to have to think about how we do what's called strategic retreat. No one likes to talk about it. It's a very sensitive issue. It's a very hard issue. But there are areas on Long Island right now that, like Montauk, for instance, like some areas in the town of Brookhaven where bluffs on the North Shore are starting to cave and crumble and houses coming down, the North Fork of Long Island. There are areas that are very vulnerable to sea level rise, and we need to figure out what to do about that now, not wait to, to homes and businesses and hotels fall into the ocean. Now is the time to act, not later. A debate that would uh, probably take up an entire show. We could, we yes. could look at that in the, in, the, in the future, I'm sure. Adrian Esposito is the executive director of the Citizens Campaign for the Environment based in Farmingdale on Long Island. And uh, during a very busy Earth Week for you, thanks very much for spending some of your time with us and uh, touching on uh, some of the projects the Environmental Bond Act will fund for having me. We're excited to watch the implementation of the Bond Act and make sure we get clean water, clean air, and green jobs as it was promised. Our program today was produced by senior producer Ann Lopez, along with Fatou Sangare, Sophie Kamizi, and Sayana Bosch. I'm Tom Kuser. Thank you for listening to The Full Story.